Whoa. Microbes. <laughs> yes. Science. That's wild. How do people it think of this stuff? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. Welcome to the Nutrition Nerds Podcast. My name is Jennifer Ball. And I'm Kelly Yates. And we are the, the Nutrition, Nutrition Nerds. Nerds. We both hold bachelor's degrees in dietetics and are on our way to becoming registered dietitians. Each weekend, we'll share the latest nutrition news from popular media and debunk fad diets and food myths. This is not supposed to be dietary advice. If you are looking for dietary recommendations, consult a registered dietitian. Enjoy! Welcome, nerds, to episode 78. Thank you so much for joining us and tuning in. If you want to support The Nutrition Nerds, please go to our website, thenutritionnerdspodcast.com, and go to our shop and get some cute nerd swag. Or you can become a patron of the show for just $5 or $10 a month. And if you can't do any of those things, you can always just share us with a friend on social media or in conversation. This week on the show, we'll be talking about how a common heartburn medication may lead to an increased risk of cancer. Then we'll talk about how gluten consumption may increase your risk of type 1 diabetes. Then we'll talk about protein overload. And finally, a way to create dairy ice cream without animals. This first article is from CBS News and others, titled Popular Heartburn Drug, Zantec, Pulled Off the Market. Oh, I didn't realize it was pulled off the market. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, but you know what? I don't, that is true for all vendors because I was in two separate grocery stores this week and I still saw them in the drug aisle. Oh. So that makes me sad. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we'll get into all that. Okay. So even if you're not buying Zantac, you should know that it's generic. Ratadine is being pulled from the market because of its cancerous byproduct found during third-party testing. The testing was a routine check done by the company. Zenofti, who makes it. Retidine is a H2 blocker, or a histamine 2 blocker, which decreases the amount of acid created by the stomach. Our stomach creates acid, and that's a good thing because it helps digest proteins and helps kill off bacteria that doesn't belong in our gut. Over-the-counter retidine is approved to prevent and relieve heartburn associated with acid indigestion and a sour stomach. Prescription retidine is also approved for treatment and prevention of ulcers of the stomach and intestines, and treatment of gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD. The FDA says it's working with international regulators and industry partners to determine the source of this impurity in ratidine and examining the levels of NDMA. NDMA is short for the compound N-nitrosodimethylamine. Now, if NDMA sounds familiar to any nutrition nerds out there, it's because this is the same compound that is a byproduct in smoked, processed, and cured meats. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now remember, the dose makes the poison, and some people are getting too much of this byproduct from medications and foods. On Wednesday, September 25th, Sanofti, the company that makes Zantec, announced that it's halting distribution of it. So if you or a loved one is taking ritidine, over-the-counter or prescription, I encourage you to talk to your healthcare professional about other treatment options. Dr. McGibbon, a doctor of gastroenterology, was quoted, Every medication has potential side effects, so you take it for the shortest time and try to fix the underlying condition and eliminate the need for the medication. Yeah. And I definitely agree with the doctor here. 
Consumers and healthcare professionals should report any adverse reactions with ratadine to the FDA's MedWatch program to help the agency better understand the scope of the problem. And we'll have a link in the show notes if you want to report a reaction. European countries are undergoing their own investigation, as Zantec and Zonafti are an international brand. And yes, there are multiple drugs on the market that are approved for the same or similar uses as ratadine. Other heartburn drugs on the market, such as Prevacid, Nexium, and Prolisec, have different ingredients and are not included in this alert. And we also covered heartburn medications on episode 72, so please check that out if you want tips and tricks for how to reduce heartburn without drugs. Oh, yes. There's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And I know people will take these medications every single day for decades. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad they caught that because that is definitely a significant dose. Yes. When you take something yeah. every day, um, it's definitely going to have an impact on your health. And that can be for good or for bad. Right. Yep. Or both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's just about the whole picture. Like, again, if you're taking that every day and you're eating a bunch of processed and cured or smoked meats, then you're really doubling that dose. So right. it can definitely make a big impact. Yeah. Yep. Our next article is from Helio.com. It's written by Regina Schaefer, and it's called Gluten Consumption During Infancy Tied to Type 1 Diabetes Risk. And I just want to preface this by saying, <laughs> don't freak out as <laughs> Yeah, always. it's like, it's interesting. <laughs> yes. It's an interesting headline for sure. It is. It definitely caught my eye. And it's when I could see people reading the headline and not reading the article and freaking out. So we'll cover it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> According to study data presented at the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, annual meeting, each 10 grams of gluten consumed daily during infancy is associated with a 46% increased risk of developing type 1 diabetes during the next 12 years. So the translation of that, if you eat gluten every day as a baby, it increases your risk of getting it in the next 12 years of your life. Hmm. That's quite a significant risk increase. 46 is is big. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The study states, no studies have investigated the relation between the amount of gluten intake by both the mother during pregnancy and the child in early life and risk of developing type 1 diabetes in childhood. So they also examined the mother's intake of gluten and its impact on diabetes as well. Okay. Makes sense because when you're an infant, usually you are, you know, still have a lot of risk factors based off of the time in the womb. So, Right, exactly. The researcher's objective was to examine the association between the maternal gluten intake during pregnancy, the child's gluten intake at age 18 months, and the risk of type 1 diabetes in the child. And this was a Norwegian study. It was population-based and nationwide. So during a mean follow-up of 12.3 years, 346 children, which was 0.4%, developed type 1 diabetes. The average gluten intake was 13.6 grams per day for mothers during pregnancy and 8.8 grams per day for the child at age 18 months. And I know we're talking about gluten in grams here. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I don't have a great way to 
make that applicable to our everyday real life diet. Okay. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a part of a part of our diet. Right. I was, I and I was going to, yeah. and I was going to ask, of course. So it's interesting. Yeah. I, I really wish studies would make that more translatable <laughs> right. into actual foods. Yeah. I'll see if I, I looked a, around a little bit. If I find anything that makes it make more sense, I'll post mm-hmm. it because it is kind of abstract. Mm-hmm. So researchers found that maternal gluten intake in mid-pregnancy was not associated with the development of type 1 diabetes in the child. However, each 10 grams per day of gluten intake consumed in the first 18 months, like we talked about, was associated with an increased risk of developing type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. The researchers were quoted as saying, the study suggests that the child's gluten intake and not the maternal intake during pregnancy could increase the risk of type 1 diabetes in a child. Our observations may motivate future interventional studies with reduced gluten intake to establish whether there is a true causal association between amount of gluten intake and type 1 diabetes. So I love to hear that because they're taking an association and hopefully doing a study that might show causation, which is really what we care about. The researchers noted that the findings, together with existing evidence, are not enough to encourage people to avoid or reduce gluten intake. So this is not confirming anything. Mm -hmm. This is not saying stop feeding your children gluten. It's just a possibility. Right. It seems to me that if this was really a causation, then you would have more prevalence of type 1 diabetes. Yes. So even though the risk factor seems really high... When you look at the number of people that have diabetes versus the number of people that are eating gluten, it doesn't seem to add up to me. Just some fun stats. Um, Approximately 1.25 million American children and adults have type 1 diabetes, but we're not even the country with the largest prevalence of type 1. It's actually Finland. Fun fact. Well, that makes sense. This studies from around that area of the world. Oh, yeah. So for them, it's more important to look at um, possible causation factors. I did find how many grams of gluten are in a slice of bread. Ooh, great. So one slice of bread has approximately five grams. So if you are giving a sandwich, like a grilled cheese, Mm. uh, you know, that would be your 10 grams right there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that wouldn't include like the pasta you ate later that day or whatever. Yep, exactly. And I think Intake of grains with young children is pretty common in their, when they're trying to learn how to eat solid foods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cereals and soft breads and things like that are pretty common foods. So I think a 10 gram a day intake is not crazy. Yeah, I, I agree if that's what's in one slice of bread. And that is mm-hmm. from, by the way, celiacindia.org. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so at least it's a .org. Yeah, yeah feel like I can reasonably trust that. So gluten continues to be an interesting enemy, I guess, in some circles, you know? Yeah, I don't and know I'm if wondering. It's... No, go ahead. Well, I'm just wondering, like, how it gets a lot of pushback. There's a lot of skepticism about gluten being a irritant mm-hmm. or a possible uh, morbidity cofactor and Maybe, I don't know, as we look at it more and more, maybe we'll feel differently in a few years. Or maybe yeah. not. Maybe it's just 
smoke and mirrors? I mean, I think a, I was going to say a big part of it, but I think maybe part of it, which we've talked about before on the show, is that our grains have way, way, way more gluten in them than they used to. Yes, I was I was yeah. just thinking that too. So it might just be the dose that we're all it, getting. Mm-hmm. Because it makes it softer, right? More well, palatable. Well, that elastic nature. Yeah. So I'm not. Sh- I mean, I'm not sure what the what caused that. Why they decided to breed more gluten into grains. But I did think it was interesting that this study was researching the link between gluten and type one diabetes because I had never heard of a link between the two. And it seemed, the, the way the study was written, it seemed like that was already established. So I kind of looked into that further, and the American Diabetes Association said about 10% of people with type 1 diabetes also have confirmed celiac disease. Oh, interesting. And that's a pretty significant amount considering the amount of the general population mm-hmm. that has celiac. Interesting. So there is an increased incidence of it in people with uh, type 1. And they're both autoimmune disorders, and they both have similar symptoms. And according to a Healthline article written by Natalie Butler, who is a dietitian, there is some research suggesting that there may be a genetic link between celiac disease and type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And if that sounds interesting to you, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. There's also the fact that celiac and individuals with type 1 diabetes can sometimes come without symptoms which means it can go on undiagnosed for longer and cause more damage. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's it's really crazy, like, the amount of damage that hyperglycemia can cause to your eyes. Oh, yeah. Uh, for those of, mm-hmm. uh, listeners that aren't RDs to be your dietitians, the neuropathy, the loss of sensation in, like, your fingers and feet, uh, the damage that it can do to your kidneys, your blood vessels, which can affect your heart, your eyes. It's, um, I think, more dangerous than people realize. Yep. And all of that is to do with the, you know, having more sugar in your blood means that your blood is too concentrated, Mm -hmm. basically, and that damages all the tiny blood vessels everywhere. And it just, yeah, it causes all those things you just mentioned. Right. Because our, those blood vessels in our kidney uh, and our eyes are very tiny. So I think that's Mm -hmm. why they're probably impacted the most. Yep. And hands and feet. Mm -hmm. And nerves. And, right. Yeah, anyway. Head, <laughs> shoulders, knees, <laughs> and toes. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, it's safe to say that the more we learn, the less we really know. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Our next article is from Women's Health, and it's titled, What Happens If You Eat Too Much Protein? It Can Come With Serious Side Effects for Certain People. And it's written by Jessica Miglada, a reporter but she consulted a registered dietitian. Hooray. Oh, good job. Yes. (laughs) Miss R.D. Amy Kubal for her nutrition details. And Jessica writes that protein has been the most loved macro for a while now. (laughs) Want to lose weight? Up your protein intake. Want to see those muscle gains? More protein. But while it's true that protein is an important macronutrient because of its amino acid composition, those are the building blocks of muscle, It's not true that by eating more protein, we gain more muscle. It's not like a nutrient we intake and suddenly muscle begins to grow. Right. It doesn't directly transfer to your biceps. (laughs) Right. It doesn't, it rebuilds them. So 
protein is vital in your diet in order to preserve, repair, and grow muscle, but not in a way like it's um, contributing directly to it. You still have to go lift weights. <laughs> right. <laughs> or rock climb. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> However, it's possible to go overboard on protein. You can eat too much of anything. Currently, the RDA recommends just 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And to do the quick math, you divide your weight in pounds by 2.2, then multiply that by the 0.8 to get the amount of protein that your body requires in grams. Mm -hmm. So for example, a 140-pound woman would want about 50 grams of protein per day, but that's really at minimum. Yeah. There's a growing movement towards recommending higher intakes of protein, of course, among active people. And as you age, or the more active you are, you break down muscles during exercise. And the recommendations for protein actually change based on who you are and your condition. So that 0.8 grams is really just a minimum. It really depends on who you are and what your conditions are. Exactly. So for example, the American College of Sports Medicine, or the ACSM, recommends bumping up your protein intake to 1.2 to 1.7 grams of protein Mm. per kilogram of body weight if you're an athlete, or 0.5 to 0.8 grams per pound. So if you're a 140-pound active woman, you need to consume between 70 and 112 grams of protein. So that's quite a significant boost. Mm. That's, you know, the higher end is like over double. Right. That that can make a big difference on your performance and your muscle growth and how sore you are the next day. (laughs) Because if you, you know really pushing it in the gym, you want to make sure you have protein replenished. Mm. And if you, of course, want a customized recommendation, we encourage you to see a registered dietitian to plan out what's right for you because yeah. they're the best resource for doing that. And ideally, one who is a sports dietitian because they really can help you get specific with all the nitty gritty stuff because it is a different a different world, <laughs> sports mm-hmm. dietetic. They got those special formulas. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so what about too much protein, though? Going back to the idea of the article, your body can actually only use so much protein. Mm-hmm. And this is something that uh, was new to me that I liked. RD Amy Kubal says that that's around 30 grams of protein per meal. Oh. So really, it's not like you can front load or back load that in one meal, like you're only going to use, your body is only capable of using so much at a time. So 30 grams, what the heck is that, right? (laughs) If we're looking at meat protein, that's a small boneless chicken breast or a cup of cottage cheese. Mm. (laughs) Who eats cottage cheese? Me. You? (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, okay. And I would eat well, it. I mean, a cup is a lot, but I would eat it. Oh, jeez. I would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's like two kinds of people in this world, those who eat cottage cheese and those who don't. <laughs> and I think for those of you who use protein powder, I mean, they, they vary, but a scoop is usually like 25 grams of protein. Yeah, just read the um, nutrition yeah. label to find out like how many scoops you need to get to the number of grams. So that can mm-hmm. be really important if you're making a shake post-meal. Yeah, or post-workout, or, right? is to um, make sure you hit that 30 grams. Yeah, and maybe not bother going over it because then you're just wasting money. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. This is why dietitians are so cool. They like get it down to a science and they're like, no, over that and you're just wasting money. You're not yeah. doing anything for yourself. 
So spreading out protein intake during the day and at each meal is best for muscle protein synthesis. And if you want a visual rather than 30 grams or reading nutrition labels, maybe just look at your plate and you want a quarter of your plate to be a lean protein at every meal. So that's a good rule, I think. And what happens if you eat too much? (laughs) The dietitian says that even if you went to town on steak tacos last night, you probably won't suffer any side effects besides from feeling pretty full. Protein takes more energy to digest, and you often feel fuller compared to eating a carb-heavy meal. And if your goal is weight loss, then eating around 30 grams of protein at a meal can be a smart idea to boost the satiation factor of that meal. Above and beyond that, though, your body will metabolize and store excess protein as fat. So it's just a reminder that it's not just sugar that can be stored that way from carbs. It's really any access of protein, fat, or carbs that can be right. stored that way. We like to, you know, like sometimes in the media, social media or the news, they like to say like, oh, this, this one thing is causing excess fat. Well, it's like, well, you know, anything can do that. <laughs> That's how the body works. <laughs> Sorry. Now, only in some cases, going overboard on protein can be dangerous. If you've ever heard the myth that too much protein is dangerous, this comes from a health risk for a specific population, those with kidney disease. People with kidney disease who do not yet qualify for dialysis need to monitor their protein intake very carefully to make sure they're not getting too much. And why is that? I will tell you. (laughs) Protein is the only (laughs) macronutrient that contains nitrogen. And when the kidney starts to fail, nitrogen is not excreted in the urine as well. And the compound can become toxic when it builds up in the body. Mm -hmm. And don't worry, this is not the case for healthy people. There are less serious side effects you can expect if you're eating too much protein. Like we said earlier, feeling uncomfortably full. Some people just find that eating a lot of protein just sits like a rock in their stomach. Um, And that, of course, can lead to constipation. If you're going overboard on high-protein foods all the time, the risk that these will displace other healthy foods or macronutrients uh, is likely, and that includes fiber. Mm-hmm. Fiber, of course. So if you're eating that big steak, you're probably not eating a lot of vegetables with that. And if you have a lot of meat and dairy, they don't have a lot of fiber. So of course, your digestive system gets very unhappy. You might also not be able to lose weight if you're trying to, if you're eating too much protein. She adds here, which is interesting to me, if you're a keto dieter, having too much protein might prevent you from going into ketosis, of course. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really all about that fat. True ketosis happens when your body is consuming like 80% fat. Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that doesn't leave a lot of room for carbohydrates or protein. Mm-hmm. So again, look at your plate. One quarter protein, one quarter starch, and one half non-starchy vegetables is an easy guideline for filling your plate properly. If these ratios are off in any direction, it's an indicator you might be skimping on or going overboard on a particular macro. So again, it's all about balance. So what, what can you do if you've gone overboard on protein? She recommends drinking more water to help your kidneys move things through and flush the nitrogen from the protein out of your system. And then at your next meal, take the opportunity to look at some of the other macronutrients your body may have missed out on lately, like complex carbohydrates, which will contain fiber. And of course, after you eat, check in on how you're feeling. If you didn't have any vegetables and you're feeling off, be sure to get those in next meal. Ooh, I like that she said that because I was also going to say what you described with the quarter meat, half vegetables, quarter starch, that's 
my plate, basically. Mm -hmm. And if your plate looks like that at every meal, that's great. But if your diet looks like that overall, and it's not exactly that at each meal, that's fine, too. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we go out to eat and get a hamburger and fries, and then maybe the next meal we'll have a big salad. And, you know, as long as it evens out, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that you said that. And Kelly is referring not to her personal plate, but um, oh. the, <laughs> yeah. my plate. For those of you who are maybe new to the show or don't know already, it's the my plate guidelines that gives us a visual representation on a balanced diet. Yeah, it replaced and, the food pyramid. Yes. Yeah. Uh, down with the pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> my plate is a um, big win, I think. Yeah, it's so much easier and more flexible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what's funny to me about this article is that there's a huge movement right now to be more plant-based. And it was interesting to me that they didn't talk about that at oh, all yeah. in this article. And what's interesting about plant-based proteins is that you don't, I don't think you have to worry about protein overload or a lack of fiber because of course the plant's going to provide those things along with the protein, unlike a meat or a dairy. Yeah, they tend to be lower in protein and, like you said, higher in fiber. And they also usually have, you know, maybe some phytochemicals or some other good minerals and vitamins that aren't mm. as abundant in animal proteins. So, yeah, that's a great way to kind of lower your protein but still get it in to your diet. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite plant-based protein? Um, I... Well, one that I used to eat a lot more when I was a vegetarian, and then I stopped eating when I when I became paleo, and I just never tried it again, is tempeh. Really, it's a, like a fermented soybean product, and it's really the only kind of soy that I liked. Mm -hmm. It's really yummy. You can like marinate it in some teriyaki sauce and saute it in like a cast iron skillet, and it's just got this really yummy flavor. Oh, you know, I've never tried it and uh, I need to. Yeah. As someone who thinks that, well, <laughs> I used to not like tofu, but I can't say that anymore, but I'll explain more of that later. I need to try tempeh because I heard it has a nuttier flavor to it. Yeah, it, exactly. Mm -hmm. Cool. That, that was appealing to me. And it was also featured recently on Food and Nutrition magazine too. Oh. So that yeah. magazine's put out by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and it was on the front cover recently. It's also got some texture to it. The soybeans are not completely mushed up. So it's, I like that too. Yeah. Right. Right. It doesn't, I don't think it looks very appealing, but oh, it looks horrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it needs to be dressed up, I think with other things, yeah. other like vegetables to kind of, yeah, just close your eyes while you eat it. <laughs> don't eat with your eyes. Got it. <laughs> um, yeah. I think my favorite plant-based protein are beans and lentils. A lentil soup or a nice Indian dal is one of my favorite things. Or oh my a curry. Gosh, I love dal. Yeah. Mm. So I got to make that soon. So um, real quick on the tofu thing, mm -hmm. I've always said, I don't like tofu. I don't like tofu. And it's a shame because, you know, it's pretty healthy for you. So one of my projects that I've been working on in my internship is to make tofu palatable to me because I figured if I can do it for myself like I could turn other people on to this healthy cool. food so I made a veggie 
bomb me sandwich and a bomb me is a vietnamese style sandwich uh it usually comes with pulled pork uh which is delicious oh yeah <laughs> but it does have a lot of saturated fat um and so what i did is i marinated tofu and cauliflower in a vietnamese style sauce and overnight which is very important i realized for tofu you have to marinate it mm. if you don't marinate it you're doing it wrong <laughs> And I cut it up into thin strips to marinate it. So it really get saturated. And I grilled it up and made it nice and crispy, like golden brown, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I put it in that bread with like the usual balmy dressings, which is like pickled vegetables and jalapenos, cilantro and mint, a little bit of mayo and sriracha. And it was delicious. I didn't know I was eating tofu. And one of my preceptors, who's a manager over there in retail, was like, okay, I didn't like tofu either, but I would eat this. Definitely. So that was just a big win to me. Like to have a a guy, a male be like, okay, like big meat eater be like, okay, I I like this. I am drooling. Yeah. It's so good yeah the, it turned out well and it's and it's a really beautiful uh, sandwich too so uh yeah. and it's gonna go on sale at the emory cafe on wednesday so <gasps> hope it goes oh my god i hope it goes well uh we're ma- i'm gonna be in the kitchen on tuesday doing quantity food production so yay oh, wow well at least it's your own recipe that's so cool yeah it's exciting um, I just want to slip this in here since we're talking about soy, and I know soy is still controversial. Listen to episode 10 if you haven't already. It's our big soy episode, and it talks all about the pros and cons of soy and the fact that it's not going to kill you and it's not going to destroy your, your hormones if you just eat it in moderation. So listen to that if you haven't already. It's a great episode. It is. I did so much research for that episode, and it was really rewarding. That was a labor of love, for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny that you're talking about protein and animal proteins and all that stuff, because my article, my next one, is kind of about that. It's from NPR's The Salt, which is a resource we both love. And it's written, yeah, I love, every time I remember that it exists, I get so excited because I know I'm going to find something there. (laughs) Always so interesting, too. This one's written by Maria Godoy, which I think we've covered some of her articles before. And it's called Dairy Ice Cream, No Cow Needed. These egg and milk products are made without animals. Interesting. Yeah, the future is here. Yeah. Kind of spooky. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like we're going to get a ton of new food products in the next 10 years. Oh, yeah. Stuff that we've never thought possible. Yeah, because it's all kind of, they're working on these things behind the scenes right now. So it's just going to explode and it's going to be wild. I'm excited to see whether people will be receptive to or not to it or not and I don't know if I'll be receptive to it or not so (laughs) we'll see so the realm of plant-based meat substitutes has gotten a lot of buzz lately that's what we were just saying Mm -hmm. one thing we've covered is the impossible burger companies like this use biochemistry to mimic the taste and texture of meat using plant-based ingredients but there's another frontier along these lines And those are startups that use microbes 
to create egg, dairy, and other animal proteins without animals. Whoa. Microbes. <laughs> yes. Science. That's wild. How do people it think of this stuff? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. So the reason a lot of these companies are heading in this direction is sustainability. Mm-hmm. Livestock agriculture uses a lot of water and land and produces significant amounts of greenhouse gases. Bruce Friedberg of the Good Food Institute states, if you can produce just the proteins that you want without keeping a living animal alive, that's going to be a lot more efficient so it's better for the environment. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a really good article for around Halloween time because it's just, it's like, I don't want to make it sound bad, but it, it just reminds me of Franken food because it's animal protein without animals. It's just kind of wild. Wow. The Good Food Institute, that's where Friedrich is from, they promote plant and cell-based alternatives to animal protein. And Friedrich says, as the technology scales up, it will be a lot cheaper to produce proteins this way too, as well as being more sustainable. And among the early entrants into this field is Perfect Day, a producer of an animal-free, dairy-free ice cream. The company took the genetic code for the main proteins in whey, which is a byproduct of cheese making. They then took these proteins and had them artificially synthesized into a molecule of DNA. Then they genetically engineered microbes to produce the same proteins through fermentation. Whoa. <laughs> I know. That's so wild. Ryan Pandya, co-founder of Perfect Day, says that just like cows eat plants and make milk, it turns out that microflora, which is the microbes, can eat plants and make milk. And that's all they've done. <laughs> so... He says the process is simple. You take a tank of microbes, you feed them, and then the actual microbes turn into milk protein. They then separate it out with filtration and drying, and there's your way. So it kind of reminds me of like how you'd make kombucha or any of those other fermented things. It's just that the microbes themselves mm-hmm. are creating the product. So why this big focus on whey? Well, <laughs> it might be kind of obvious. Whey is a huge part of our food system. It's a big part of what makes ice cream so creamy, and it's a huge money maker. The goal of Perfect Day, for instance, is to become an ingredient supplier to all the food companies that rely on whey to boost protein levels in foods like protein bars and protein shakes. Now the huge catch to this and a huge money maker is that these products will not only have cheaper whey proteins in them, but they'll be able to say that they're vegan because no animals were used. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. It is. Other companies looking to shake up the food supply include Motif Ingredients. Their aim is to produce alternatives to not only dairy, but eggs and meat proteins, also using microbial fermentation, and they also plan to supply those products to food makers. Another company called New Culture is planning to make casein. And this is a different milk protein that instead of making products creamy, it makes them kind of stretchy. So it's what gives cheese its, it's a stretchy, springy quality. Mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> now I I'm know. drooling. <laughs> is it lunchtime yet? Yeah, uh, it's going to be after this. It kind of is. And this, the fact that casein so far is only found in animal products is really a big part of why vegan cheeses struggle to mimic animal cheese. Yeah. Yeah, because they just don't have that stretchy quality that cheese has. Yep, comes from the casein. If all of this is sounding a little too futuristic, consider this. Most cheese produced today already relies on this technology, and that is in the form of rennet, which is an enzyme used to curdle milk. And if you look on the back of any cheese package, you'll probably see rennet Mm -hmm. in the ingredient label. Cheesemakers used to get this product from the stomachs of slaughtered calves, all, but for many years now, much of the rennet used for cheese has been made via microbial fermentation. So this is already happening, and it's been happening for years. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And given that this technology is already out there and that the synthetic animal proteins produced are exact genetic replicas of the real thing, the companies making them don't anticipate major hurdles with regulators at the FDA. But some critics, like Dana Pearls, who is the senior food campaigner for the environmental group Friends of the Earth, are concerned that the FDA will not give sufficient scrutiny to this new wave of synthetic proteins. Mm. And I get that concern. She She's worried that the adoption of these proteins will make our food supply even more dependent on the fruits of biotechnology, and she insists that the real solution for climate chaos and animal welfare problems are the truly organic plant-based sources of proteins and organic solutions for less and better meat. Hmm. So I see her argument, we could just eat less meat, but we also have a overwhelmingly large population. And even if we all reduced our meat intake, it's still very taxing to the planet. So mm-hmm. I see both sides. Yeah. And you want to give consumers and what they enjoy. And it's just not that simple to say like, oh, we'll just stop eating meat and cheese. Like people don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't want to stop eating cheese. <laughs> Some people do, but <laughs> but a lot of people simply won't. And yeah. You can hear all day about the horrors of the farming industry and the environmental impact, but some people aren't going to give up their favorite foods. So I think it's great that people are creating these options. It's fascinating. Yeah. And and if it's as good as the real thing, I'm I'm open-minded. Well, and that's the question, right? If it's as good as the real thing. Alan Bierga of the National Milk Producers Federation says that the products made with synthetic dairy may not have the same nutritional profile, such as vitamin and minerals, yep, as those made from milk from real cows. But remember, this is coming from a spokesperson from the National Milk Producers Federation. So we have to keep that in mind. Okay. They have a vested interest in these products not becoming popular. Okay. Then again, we don't have the nutrition information for these products yet. So we don't know if the nutrient profile is going to be the same. Now, what we do know is that true animal products nutrient profile does depend on living conditions, diet, and other things. For instance, we know that the fat in grass-fed meat has a higher omega-3 content than conventional meat. Mm -hmm. We know that eggs from chickens who are free-range tend to have slightly more vitamins and minerals. So Mm -hmm. there are a lot of factors that 
impact the nutrient profile of these animal products. So what happens when these animal products don't come from an animal? What happens to the nutrient profile? Mm -hmm. So there, I have to imagine there will be some sort of impact. We just maybe don't know what that is yet. And right. it could be that they will figure out a way to make these products even more nutritious because that would be a bigger moneymaker, right? So we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Future is now yep. to be, to be continued. <laughs> to be continued. That's it for this week. If you want more info on anything we talked about, or if you'd like to read the articles we referenced, you can find our show notes at the nutritionnerdspodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Nutrition Nerds Podcast. And if you like this week's episode, please head over to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review. Getting reviews allows us to grow and helps us reach more people. So if you have a few spare seconds, we'd really appreciate it. And if there's anything you want us to cover on the show, please drop us a line at the Nutrition Nerds Podcast at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media pages. We love to hear from you and cover the stuff that you're interested in. Later, nerds! This has been the Nutrition Nerds Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And until next week, eat, eat well and stay nerdy. nerdy.